Performa Nation, Performa Heroes. How's it going? Welcome to the Performa Popcast. I'm your host, comedian Peter Sears, fitness enthusiast Peter Sears. Um, we have a guest today, and this is the first time that I'm going to have a guest on this podcast that is similar to me in the aspect that um, she is a comedian, but also has a background in fitness. So I thought it'd be fun to have a like-minded individual on this show. Um, this uh, My next guest has performed, she's been a stand-up comedian for like, what, 11 years, right? I want to say. Yes. Uh, 10 years. Um, she has performed overseas for the troops in a few different countries. She has a show uh, that she did that she can't talk about quite yet. I'm sorry, but it's going to be on ABC this fall. And she's the host of the Secret Minorities podcast. And you can find that everywhere. Um, lady, and I've worked with her a few times. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Danielle Arce. Yay. Thanks. Hi. <laughs> All right. Welcome to Thank Perform. You, welcome to Perform a Nation. Um, Okay, so first question first. Uh, this is an easy question, but when did you get into like fitness? Fitness? I haven't been involved in fitness and sports my entire life. Uh, okay. Both my parents are athletes. So from a young child from the age of five or six, I was getting involved in, in track and field. Eventually I got involved in martial arts uh, about the eight, just before I turned eight. And I started teaching and training people at age 12. Really? So it has been 22 years of teaching and training people. What kind of uh, what kind of martial art did you get involved in? Well, I started with Taekwondo. I'm a okay. I still hold a fourth degree black belt. Um, when I was a teenager, I um, got a couple of state championship titles in Arizona. Um, but I'm also trained in submission grappling, um, oh. street self defense. Uh, one particular uh, called CDT, Compliance Direction Takedown. And I'm also um, very experienced with Muay Thai. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just going to put this out there, but you could probably kick my ass. Mm, yeah. You probably have a very hard time kicking my ass. That's what I usually say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's, and, and I'm not a fight. I'm not a fighter by I'm any either. means, <laughs> nor do I, but see, that's what like, that's what fighters say, right? Like <laughs> they don't train, they don't train like, People that are very involved in it, they don't do it to beat everybody else up per right. se. They do it to defend themselves or maybe yes. to defend others in the event that they need it. But right. it's not like they're go going around picking fights with everybody because they they know they can't, right? Yeah, I'm not a I'm not Cobra Kai. <laughs> I'm right. a Miyagi though. But <laughs> Fair enough. yeah, but then in the last, I want to say in the last since about 2014, I kind of stopped teaching martial arts exclusively, and uh -huh. I started focusing. I got my CPT, um, my certified per, uh, personal training uh, through NASM, and kind of with kind of kept that up. And now I'm also certified through AFAA NASM to do group fitness as well. So I've been kind of more focused on just general fitness, while also yeah. including martial arts within that too. Got it. Yeah. That's great. Um, what? What's your favorite, like, uh, like, what do you personally enjoy doing for your workouts? For my workouts, I personally enjoy a mix because I get so bored fast. Yeah. So like, I'll do like my, one of my favorite cardio is the rowing machine, the rower machine. I love doing that for like 10 minutes. There's um, no way that you love doing that. Nobody loves I, a rower. I love it. Really? <laughs> Yeah, I love it because I love the total body cardio. Uh -huh. I love like getting into it. I love blasting punk music in my ears while I'm going. I do love it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you, do you prefer the, cause, I mean, I'll do it, but yeah. more so like, like there's a couple of studios that I used to like to go to pre-pandemic that, you know, have like rowers as part of the class, you know? Yeah, but, like Orange Theory. Yeah, Orange Theory. And then there was Speed Play. Which yeah. I actually used to train at, but um, do you prefer the C2 or the one, the water one? Oh, I like them both, honestly. Um, the, the gym that I go to has the C2, uh -huh. um, and I've, I've used both. So I, uh, I can't pick. I like them okay. both. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I hate them both. I was just like, <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm an anti treadmill person. Like, I'm Thanks. very, I'm very against the treadmill. And so right. I like any other forms of cardio, but especially total body. 
So that's why I like it. But I also really love strength machines. Like I love using leg press. I love the booty blaster uh, machines. I love the rope trainer. I think that's one of my favorites as well. Uh -huh. Like are you um, you're talking about like the machine that you pull the rope down or yeah, pick it up? Yeah, you yeah, sit. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I love climbing rope. If the, if a gym has one, I'm <laughs> like, I like, like hit. I love high intensity interval training. I think that's my absolute favorite. Uh, but I like to really incorporate martial arts as well, like hitting the heavy bag and stuff like that. Yeah, it's so there. I, I tell people all the time. I, I I don't fight, nor do I pretend. But like, you know, I've taken a bunch of boxing classes. But there is something therapeutic about punching a bag. Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Like, or even like, uh, like if someone's holding the mitts for you yep. and you hit those the right way, it's just like. That's, that's why whenever hard. I've ever had uh, any of my personal tra training clients, every single one of them, I tell them whether you like it or not, at some point, we're going to be doing some martial arts stuff. And yeah. like, because one, it's an incredible workout, but like two, it's going to be therapeutic and you'll see, and mm -hmm. they love it. So it's great. <laughs> So you, okay, because this is a question that I ask people all yeah. the time um, on my other podcast, um, but being in, so you've been doing stand-up comedy for 10 years, right? Yes. Um, a few days ago, it was my 10-year anniversary of my first open mic. So yes, 10 years. That's a, that's a great, that's, a, that's like a big thing because it's like, you always hear like your first 10 years, you're not, you're like, you're not really, like you're a comic, but like until you put in those 10 years, yes. people maybe don't, not everyone takes you seriously, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, when you say, when you can say, yeah, I got that 10, yes. then they're like, oh shit, well, like she's in it. Like, yeah. this is it, right? Um, but in stand-up, there's not a lot of, uh, especially like when you're doing the road and stuff, um, it's very easy to not be healthy. Yes, right? very like much. You're, you're, you're staying up late, you're probably driving really far sometimes, maybe staying in a crappy hotel or condo or whatever. But anyway, it doesn't lend itself to being, you know, healthy, right? It's very easy to not be. So as you got into it, you're, you know, into fitness already and everything. How did you make it a point to, you know, do stand up and live that lifestyle, but also continue to take care of yourself? Sure. Well, I feel like the way that I train, especially it's been since before the pandemic, I started virtual personal training in, um, I want to say 2017, 2018, I started uh -huh. virtual personal training, um, because I had, I've moved around so much and gained so many clientele, like everywhere that I've lived. So right. San Diego, LA, Phoenix, Japan, um, and I've accumulated these clients. And then when I moved, they still wanted to work with me. And so I feel like because while I'm on the road, I can still work. And I know I have my clients that depend on me. Right. So if I don't keep up with myself, I can't keep up with my clients. You know, I have to be virtually training them, like I physically see them, do the exercises with them, you know, provide all of that. So if I don't maintain myself, then I can't do that for them. So that's like one reason. That's one big reason. Uh -huh. it keeps me going um I've definitely gone through slumps <laughs> especially the last 10 years of my life have not been easy so there have been moments of weakness um as far as taking care of myself and not taking my own fitness advice but overall it's just knowing how and just remembering how eating healthy and exercising regularly maintains a good uh, mental stability and I yeah. have to be mentally stable to do anything. So, I agree. So you were you said you were training people virtually before all this happened. Yes. So how like I, I mean I didn't even know it was an option beforehand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, <laughs> a client reached out to me saying that even though I had moved, she had tried working with other trainers. Uh -huh. I think she had tried like two or three, and she wasn't happy. And she was like, I miss Danielle. And so she reached out and was like, hey, how would you feel about doing virtual training? You know? And I was like, that sounds like a great idea. I can completely do that. And we just started doing it. Um, and then since then, even before the pandemic started, I was training another friend that I used to train as well that lived um, in Japan. So 
one client in Boston, one client in Japan, and then pandemic hit, kept those clients. And then my other clients were moving virtually. And I started just picking up people who just also just loved working from home and doing everything from home. And now the pandemic is kind of over, gyms are open, but I'm still maintaining and have a great retention rate with these clients that I've been right. working with for years. So it's been honestly a blessing, especially as a stand-up comic. Yeah. So, so you're doing like, a, so people are working out with you from their house. Yes. Right. And are, and you're just kind of doing workouts based on whatever equipment they might have. Yeah. So a lot of times um, it's very minimal equipment. There's, I have a couple of clients that only have like maybe one or two pieces. Some people have nothing and we'll do entirely body weight exercises and strength exercises. Um, so I've just learned to adapt and move. And then there's certain clients that will be like, Hey, I have this Pilates ring or I have this. And I'm like, okay, um, I want you to utilize what you spent money on. So right, I'm yeah. going to do my part. I'm going to take some courses. Or I'm going to go online. I'm going to learn how to use this properly. And then I can train you with it. Right. Um, that stems back from when I was training somebody to do a Spartan race in person. And she was like, I need to learn how to climb a rope. And I was like, I didn't tell her this, but in my head, I was like, I've never climbed a rope before. So uh -huh. I was like, okay, she's got about two weeks till we got to start training with that. So I took it upon myself to find a gym that had a rope and I trained every other day on how to do it and then taught her how so it's just about as a trainer you've got to learn to adapt and uh to what the client wants or what they have available to them so can i i'm not i don't want to speak for you but uh, <laughs> i think a message would be you don't need a gym you don't need all this fancy equipment like you can still do stuff in your house without anything just gotta do the research or find seek someone out or i mean there, i i always tell people like there's plenty of stuff online like if you really mm -hmm. want it like you can go especially like youtube or whatever like if you want stuff for whatever you have or you know it's out there you just gotta and i'd say the beauty of another another big beautiful part of virtual personal training is that there really isn't an excuse because you really don't need much space either like I've, I used to live in a tiny studio apartment, very small, very limited space. And I did full workouts for my clients in a tiny space. So it's like, it doesn't matter if you only have six by six, you know, it, feet, you know, six feet yeah. by six feet. If you have no equipment, some equipment, because all you literally have to do is roll out of bed and open your computer, open your phone, open your tablet, whatever you use. And you also with personal training, I require people pay in advance. Because now you've already paid for it. You're going to show up. You're going to do it. So it's just, for me, I love doing it. And I feel like the clients really like that they don't have to go to the gym. Yes. I don't, like, I love the gym because I like lifting me heavy too. things. <laughs> me too. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, like, but, like, you know, I understand, like, if you're not a gym person, because right. there are people that are not gym. It could be intimidating. It could be overwhelming. It could be, mm -hmm. you know, feeling like people are watching you or whatever there's all those things they that might like, live kind of far from the gym or something like that which i have or that yeah clients they just can't drive 15 minutes to the gym so yeah um so yeah like there's there's just a ton of things our point is do not let the fact that you don't like going to a gym or you don't have access to things get in your way because there's a right. million things you can do right yes um okay Let's talk comedy a little bit. You got in, you've been doing it for 10 years. Yes. Uh, how or why? Like, when was the day that you were like, this is what I'm going to do, man? Sure. Well, I mean, I had been part of an improv troupe in Scottsdale, Arizona for a long time. And I did that because I was super involved with acting my whole uh -huh. life. I started with theater, got involved with TV and film. We found out I had to do improv. And so I got involved with improv and that's when I was like, oh, I I do like being on stage. That's what I liked about theater, but I can't sing or dance. So uh, I got to be funny on stage and I was like, this is fun, but I still felt empty. And I always loved watching stand up. I, it was something I've always admired. Um, and so I was like, maybe I should try to learn stand up. And June 1st, 2011 uh, was my first open mic. I did comedy for six months consistently, really liked it. And then um, I was moving to LA um the next month uh after these six months and for acting and i had uh reached out to the la comedian that i was opening up for my last show in arizona and he was completely dismissive and rude 
And I'm, when I say rude, I mean, that's a light way of putting it. He was, yeah. and I don't want to say his name because he's since changed and he's like a great person now. So there's no need to, to talk shit. But I think at the time he was a different person. This was such a long time ago. Um, he could have been involved with, you know, drugs or drinking. We don't know, but he's a good guy now. So it doesn't matter. But he was completely rude to me and it really put a sour taste in my mouth. And I didn't do stand up for ne- the next year. And then- um, I was sitting down with a friend, a colleague that was on a sketch series with me and he, we were just shooting the shit or shooting the stuff. I don't know if I can curse or not. You can curse. <laughs> and I try not to, but you have to, it's, it happens. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, he was, you know, he, we were just like joking back and forth and he goes, why don't you do stand up anymore? And I was like, uh, I don't want to get involved with the people. Like, you know what I mean? I, I get it. There's like, just people have a, an ego and he goes, well, there's egos everywhere. And he's like, I feel like that's what you're supposed to do. And I was like, eh, we'll see. And he ran shows at a couple of different clubs and stuff in town. And so the next day I had an audition and in my resume, it says stand up, but it hadn't been noticed, hadn't been used. Right. And never the, audition, the casting director was like, oh, you do stand up. Can you like, maybe we'll, we'll send you to the hall for maybe like five, 10 minutes, take as much time as you need. But we'd like to see you do about four minutes of stand up. And I was like, four okay. minutes at an, at an audition that's crazy because yeah. mm-hmm. it was like um it was like it was a comedy like series that I was uh-huh. auditioning for and they were like just wanted to see like my chops I guess and it's in my resume I can't be like yeah. no you know look stupid right. so I went out to the hall I just got my shit together and was like okay all you gotta do is make them laugh that's it so I went back in and I made them laugh for four minutes straight and it was in that moment that I was like this is it yeah this is everything and then I called my friend and was like what can I do what do I got to do where are the mics and then that was January 2013 is when I decided to hit it heavy okay uh, that's that's like uh I hate I'm I'm what you call uh California sober is a new term now are you familiar with this term uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> so California sober is when you don't do anything except uh, a little bit or a lot of it. Mine is a little bit, but of marijuana. Okay. So don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs or whatever. Um, but my point is, is I, I felt like the first time I did stand up, like that was the first time I had ever been like high, right? Like mm-hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't physically I high, but like the rush that I got from the first time, like yeah. same thing. Like that first laugh, I'm like, yeah. like, oh, this is what I'm doing now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I need I need to figure out how I can do this all the time. Exactly. And, fe- and feel this way all the time. And then if I can get good enough, maybe get some money from it. But like that was way down the line. I just like I just wanted to get, have this feeling as exactly. much as I can. And it sounds like that was kind of like the thing. It's it's good, yeah. right? Like yes. would you you were probably funny growing up and whatever, like you just never know how to put it to like, okay, like, well, how do I go from being a funny person mm-hmm. to being a stand-up comedian? Yeah. It's different. I was obsessed with SNL growing up. And I mean, right. I was born in the eighties, you know? So I grew up with, you know, I feel like some of the best SNL with Adam yeah. Sandler, Chris Farley, Sherry O'Terry, Anna Gasteyer, um, Molly, Molly Shannon. Dude, those are my heroes. Sherry yeah, O'Terry, yeah. Anna Gasser, Molly Shannon. Uh, those are my women right there. Uh, Rachel Dratch. I wanted to be them, especially Sherry O'Terry. Uh-huh. She was like my number one because she was tiny and just full of this crazy right, erratic right. energy. And I was like, she's my hero. So that's like, I was a goofball in class. I was a class clown because I just like would mimic like her energy a lot, try to make people laugh. And then in theater class, I never, we did improv games. I was like, this is the best. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I remember, um, so I, I went to, I took a bunch of classes at Groundlings okay. and uh, you know, you get like, I want to say it's like half price to go to the shows if you're in, if you're like a student there. And so and we would- BCB, that's where I studied. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we would go and like a lot of times she would like be like a guest performer. And so you're like, well, yeah, like I'm like, I'm paying $6 and I get to see Sherry O'Terry. And back then, um, back then, Melissa McCarthy was still in the company before she was like, that's cool. Yeah. Like, but back then she was the girl on the Gilmore Girls. Right. Right. 
nobody, I mean, if you watched the Gilmore Girls, you knew who she was, but like she was, I remember her being like so funny. And then obviously, you know, Bridesmaids came out. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You just changed everything for her. Yeah, like a few years later, but she had been grinding it out for like, for a long time. That's kind of like how I feel like everything goes when it comes to like the entertainment industry is like, to the general public, it seems like someone just made it, you know, like they just came out of nowhere. But like, Mm -hmm. if you go back and watch like old TV shows or old movies, you'll see people doing little, you're like, oh shit, like, I didn't realize that. This person was extra in this. (laughs) Yeah, like, you know, Chris Pratt was a fat nerdy guy in this. And like, now he's Chris Pratt. Like you just, people pay their dues and you don't realize it because the public doesn't see it. But yeah. what do you call it? So you you're from Phoenix, right? Mm-hmm. That's like your original stomping grounds. But like I know you moved around a lot. Uh, is you got like I remember you got like you got like married and then you yes. moved like to Japan or something, right? So um, I got married uh, January 2014, and my then husband was in the military. He was in the in the Navy, and he was on an aircraft carrier. He was um, like a nuclear electrical uh, engineer, and so. We, I was in LA when we got married and then he got stationed in San Diego. So we live in San Diego for about a year and a, like just under two years, about a year and a half. And then he got stationed in Japan. So that's when I lived in Japan for about 15 months. Um, and then he got out of the military, right? And we moved back to LA. And a year later we got divorced because he just, just, just didn't work. People get <laughs> People get divorced, man. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I remember that, like, you know, like, I mean, we're not like, we're not like BFFs, but yeah. like, you see, you see what people are doing on their social media. And I just remember being like, dang, like, that's going to be hard to do stand up in another country. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Well, I know that's the thing, but you kept doing it. So like, how did you go from, I mean, is it just like, is there a, a demand for American comedy? Because there's so many like, you know people living overseas kind of thing yes that's exactly it there is such a high demand for english entertainment Uh um and i got spoiled uh even the open mics would be packed like it looked like sold out shows in la you know like when you go to like someone's you know someone's pub or something like that and it's packed you're like whoa this is gonna be a great show those were the open mics so so this is (laughs) let me let me pause for a second uh okay so Danielle's talking about open mics, which if you're a comic, if anyone out there is interested in being a stand-up comic, if you live in LA, or I would say probably New York, maybe even like a bigger, like other markets that are like kind of big, like, I don't know, Chicago, maybe I, I'm just seeing, but specifically like LA and New York, if you go to an open mic, it's just going to be a room full of other comedians. Yeah, it's pretty bleak. Uh, yeah, and you don't, uh, I mean, they, they serve their purpose, but most comics in those markets don't necessarily enjoy doing them because you're not going to get a lot of laughs. Um, everyone's kind of waiting to do their own thing and whatever. So um, what Danielle's saying is she's doing these same kind of shows, open mics overseas, and there's an audience. And I can attest to that because right, right now I'm in Oklahoma City um, and same thing, like, open mics in other cities people actually go there's actually like audience so it's yeah. it's essentially it's it's a you're doing a show like it's called an open mic but it's a show whereas in LA it's an open mic like yeah. there's a there's a difference so yeah. that's cool that you were and, getting that yeah and that's how the open mics were so the shows were even better right uh, and so I got to you know I did shows for stand up Tokyo and the Tokyo comedy store and that's when I also got involved with performing for the USO because one of my personal training clients okay. was the head of like, like in charge of all of the entertainment kind of things involved in the USO um, for the net for the Navy and Marines. And so I performed for the troops in camp Fuji um, uh, uh, right near Mount Fuji for the Marines. And then I performed for the Navy in Yokosuka, Japan, a couple of times. And it was during that time as well, where I really, realized how precious stand-up is to me because you know in LA you can get up on stage whether it's a mic or a show several times every single night right and in Japan 
you know, I'd maybe get up minimum three times a week, maximum, this happened, when I say maximum, it happened maybe twice, five times a week. So I was feeling something where I was like, I got to do something else. And so I saved up some money and I flew myself by myself to Melbourne, Australia. And I just looked up shows, talked to people, and I did 11 shows there in 11 days. So I wanted to see my material, take it even to a completely different country. Yeah. I did that experience while I lived in Japan as well, came back. And I feel like by doing that, by forcing myself to try these things in different places, it made me more well-rounded and it made me appreciate stand-up even more. So then when I moved back to the States in 2017, 26, I don't know, 2016, 2017, it was 2017. And I was like, this is, I got to hit it hard. Yeah. So is it like a, was it like the, the validation that you're like, okay, I could do this in other countries Yes. and that are just completely different cultures. So if I could do it there, I could do it anywhere. And now I'm back in the States and let's fucking go kind of thing. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that my comedy resonated no matter where I went. I wanted to make sure yeah. you know, I wasn't doing jokes that were too LA. I didn't want to right. do jokes that were too US. Like I wanted to appeal to make sure that everybody could resonate and laugh. And, you know, I ended up at the Comics Lounge in Melbourne, which was one of the biggest stages. And I did, they had me do one night and then I got back, I got asked to come back the second night. So that was such a wonderful experience that I hold precious and dear to my heart. And so now I just carry that everywhere where I'm like, okay, when I write, like, I want to make sure that I can make anybody laugh with this. Right. Yeah. So you're, I know you talk about like your life and stuff, right? Yes. Like, like you're like, I feel like most of us talk about things that like, like <laughs> I had, like, I, I talk about my dad a lot because my dad was into drugs and went to prison and was abusive and all that. And so, I mean, I make it funny, obviously uh-huh. you have to, you have to laugh, but like, you know, we talk about things that so, like people, I think everyday people are maybe not comfortable talking about. Yes. And then, so when a normal person hears you, they're like, oh, like this person, like, I don't know if you saw, but it, a couple weeks ago I had posted like a girl was at my show and then she slid into my DMs to be like, it sounds like you have some trauma. Like I'm here. Yeah, for you. I saw that. If you need, and I'm like, bitch, like, this is what I fucking do. Like, this is, this is my job. Like, calm See, down. She didn't understand that. So do you get mad and be like, bitch, like, all right, let's take it, take it back a notch. <laughs> of course. Right. But I, at the same time, I was just like, do you do that to every comic? Because right. we all talk about our pain. Like, yes. She's messaging yeah. Kevin Hart. She's messaging Jim Gaffigan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, it's just, the way we do it and like I'm very playful on stage but like I talk about serious stuff but I know that you do the same thing uh so do you feel like I mean I'm sure but like because I've gone through therapy and I do stand up and for me personally doing it on stage benefits me more than talking to my therapist (laughs) <laughs> I feel like both help me out yeah, and yeah, I don't for sure. just do therapy like I'm a spiritual weirdo we don't need to get into that because I don't want anybody to think I'm too hippy dippy <laughs> I feel like it's, it's such a bad stigma but a lot of like spiritual practices that I do and then speaking to like you know energy healers it's essentially therapy it really uh-huh. is just therapy because I'm just like you know I'm letting out my my stuff so I feel like balancing that out as, as well as going on stage, I feel like for me, they're both super beneficial, but you're right. There's absolutely nothing like getting on stage, talking about your deepest, darkest secrets, your deepest, darkest regrets, your, you know, this stuff that you've gone through and dealt with and let your, you know, allowed yourself to deal with and then getting people to laugh at it. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely something like, and then the best is when somebody re- comes up to you after the show and is like, Hey, me too. Yes. Not like me, not like me too, like the bad no, kind of Not me the hashtag too. me too. Yeah, like a different, like they they feel like, like, like with me, like people will always be like, oh, my dad's in prison too. Or, right. you know, my, my mom was addicted to meth and you yeah. know, I'm like, oh, cool. Like, and they're like, thanks for talking about it or yeah. whatever. Like those kind of moments you're like, cause that, that, that's, that's for me, like with standup, it's like, you know, we all want like followers and whatever and I don't want followers in the sense of like I want to be worshipped but like I want the followers in the sense that 
the more I have, the more tickets I can sell, the more I could use that as leverage to work in more places, right? Sure. Yeah. That's like, that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, but every show, I hope that like, I can make that connection to just one person. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, 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 and they care enough to be like, oh, I'm going to go follow this guy now or girl yeah. and follow their journey. And the next time they come to my town, I'm going to go see them and maybe I'll bring a friend or two or, yeah, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's great. Um, and it's still like, for me, like I'm nobody, but like, it is kind of surreal when I post like, hey, I'm going to be back in, you know, Wichita. And then people yeah. are like, oh, cool. Like, I mean, I've been waiting to see you again. And I'm like, that's, yeah. cool. that's so cool, Isn't right? It? Yeah, it just like warms your heart. It's like yeah. the ultimate feeling. I love it's that too. Yes. Like, and you know, obviously you get to a certain point in a perfect world where you're so big that like, you can't obviously interact with all of your quote unquote fans, but like on the way there, I'm like, well, I appreciate you guys because I'm nobody. And it's cool that you care enough to want to, you know, uh, okay, let me ask these are going to be some hard questions and we can answer these uh, Ready. either from a, from a fitness standpoint or from a comedy. Uh, okay. Who are three people in your life that have been the most influential? You don't have to know them either. Sure. Uh, three people that have been most influential. I'd say number one would be uh, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. Huh. She, okay. um, she passed away um, when I was... Late, late, late in my teens uh, from pancreatic cancer. Um, and the reason why I say her is because she was somebody in my family that genuinely pushed me to do what was in my heart more than anybody else in my family. Wow. So she would take me to like, uh, when I was a kid, she'd take me to like plays and live performances and stuff like that. And it was then when I would watch the other kids on stage and it just something within me just lit up and I looked at her and I remember this moment, it's clear in my mind. We were at the Herberger Theater in Phoenix, Arizona. I just looked at her and I was like, that's what I wanna do. And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, I wanna be on stage and perform and entertain. And she's like, then do it, let's figure it out. Cause when I brought it up to my parents, they were like, oh, okay, sure. You know, my Latino dad, you know, nobody in his family ever does anything like that. And then, my mom comes from an athletic background as well. Nobody. So I was this oddity. I just, I was like, this is all I want to do. And so my grandmother was the one that's like, okay, let's, let me help you out. And she would, the one, she was the one that encouraged me the most. I have a, a tattoo that has three lines and it's, it signifies loss. And this is dedicated to her because of the rule of three in comedy. So she's the one that inspired me to do what I do. So oh. Yeah, she's extremely influential as far as, because now, of course, my parents are now very supportive, which is wonderful. And I, I can't be more thankful for that. But at the time, they didn't know what to do with me. Of course. So, it was harder that I think for, you know, my, my foundation. I can't repeat uh, some of the things that my dad would call me because yeah. I was in theater and on the dance team and whatever. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine, yeah. Use your imagination, everybody. You can watch some of my stand-up clips if you really care to see what my dad was calling me, but. Uh, <laughs> it's, I, I've heard your stuff. It is yeah. pretty friggin' hilarious. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and traumatized like, me if it was you. <laughs> but it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I mean, everything happens for a reason and timing and all that stuff. But like, I do think like when I was a kid, like, what would have happened if they would have got me into like stuff when I was younger? Cause you know, it's much, much easier to break into the entertainment industry as a child right. than as an adult. Cause by an adult, you know, you're either really hot or you're not or whatever, but like when you're a kid, you're just like a cute kid or yeah. an ugly kid, which can also be a cute kid. Cause they're so ugly that they're cute. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I was not a cute kid. So who knows what it would have happened, but anyway. Um, okay. So that was my grandmother was like, I'd say one. And as far as not personal people in my life that were influential, like I mentioned earlier, Sherry O'Terry. Uh -huh. When I watched her on the screen, I was like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. You know, like everybody, because I was involved in martial arts, you know, my family were like, oh, you got to open your own martial arts school and be a martial arts teacher, which I tried in my early twenties and was successful oh. at, but didn't want to do. Um, 
my mother wanted to be me to be a school teacher because I'm so great with kids and I'm great with teaching. And I even studied that in college and decided it, like, this is not for me. All I wanted to do was be Sherry O'Terry. Okay. And just watching her on the screen, it was, it was just such a magical moment for me, especially in my preteens and com coming of age and things like that. It was just everything. So she is somebody that will always like, no matter what she's doing, I'm following her on social media, you know, I'm liking her stuff. I always support her. I think she's wonderful. And then third, um, as far as just straight stand-up comedian, I'm going to say Ali Wong. And the reason why I say that, I feel like my first five years of stand-up, I really held back a lot yeah, uh, yeah. as far as where my material went. I would skim the surface on a lot of my topics, a lot of my stories. And it was a fear that if I went deeper, it might be too much. I didn't want to be, you know, like everyone's like, oh, all females comics talk about their periods and yeast infections and all this. And I was like, well, right. here's the thing. Like, I don't want to come up and, and, you know, and get their extra vulgar and all this stuff. And I was like, I don't want to come across that way. But a lot of my personal life, my whole entire life, involves a lot of those kinds of topics but I was like how I don't know how to talk about this stuff without getting pegged in that pigeonhole and so I watched Ali Wong's first special and watching how she did it was like that's that's me like like I resonated so much with what she was talking about and how she did it and I was like now I know how to do it for my own voice and this is the baby cobra yeah baby cobra that so, so for, those, for those of you guys that don't know, Ali Wong is a very hilarious stand-up comedian. She's written for a bunch of television shows, but her comedy special that she's talking about is Netflix, I believe, right? Yes, it's um, on Netflix. She shot it while she was pregnant. Both <laughs> so, of her specials, she was Yeah, pregnant. both of her specials, yeah. <laughs> so she's basically this little, what is she, like 5'1", five, 5'2"? Five, she's tiny, yeah. Uh, Asian uh, woman who's doing a stand-up, which you, it's not like you see it. She's already a minority because there's not a lot of Asian women in comedy. And now she's using that, but also using the fact that she's a woman. And on, instead of postponing it, she's like, no, I'm just going to shoot a fucking special yes. while I'm really pregnant yeah. and talk about it and make it funny because she was talking about it, obviously. Yeah. And it was great. Like mm -hmm. She talked about like, you know, um, her, her sexual adventures growing up. She was talking about a lot of really personal things and, and things that would be considered vulgar. But the way that she did it was, I was like, that's my style. Because, you know, there's other minorities and women, like, you know, you have Margaret Cho, that's another amazing, right. you know, and, she, and much like her, I'm also like a bi comedian as well. Um, tattoos, things like that. Um, I also really, really, I don't know, but there was just something about, I love Sarah Silverman. I think she's fantastic. One of my heroes for sure. But as far as how like crass they got, I just felt like that wasn't me. And uh -huh. then when I watched Allie, I was like, okay, that's my style. You know, and no disrespect. Margaret Cho is fantastic. And Sarah Silverman is fantastic. I said, they are two of my heroes as well. But it was Allie that like, that light bulb in my head of like, oh, I know how I can take these jokes and these stories and really get deep without being like turn the people off i guess right okay so we got your grandmother yeah shiri terry and ali wong yeah so that's good that's a very diverse group yeah. Yeah. um if uh what what's and this could be like i said fitness or comedy but um what's a common myth in your profession that you would like to dispel with being a stand-up comic? Either one. Okay. Um, well, we'll, 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 go, we'll go comedy. We'll go yeah, comedy. I was gonna say with fitness, there's not really too much I feel like equal. I don't feel misjudged. I mean, other than when I taught martial arts, but I mean, I when the MMA guys came in there and they took my class, they they, they, they felt bad about treating me like okay. a little <laughs> but that's that's a different story because yeah. um, <laughs> i'm a really good instructor but uh, to, to, yeah. um but as far as stand up uh, i mean it's it's tough to be a woman in general and a lot of people forget that and i actually was just having this discussion last night i was doing a show 
with a very dear friend of mine who's a headliner on the road, uh, my friend Mike, and we were discussing things and he, he brought something up. He was talking about, I don't know what it was. Oh, um, he brought up a problem that he was having in stand-up that he had never experienced before. And he's been doing stand-up for like 14 years. And I was like, take what that experience and drag it along for the last 14 years. And that's what it's like being a woman in stand-up comedy. It's just like, there's always a struggle in one way, shape or form if you're a woman in comedy. And some of that will be like, I always second guess my outfits before I go on stage. I'm like, am I gonna come across too sexy, too, um, you know, like trying to get the wrong kind of attention. Like I wanna be funny, you know? And I'm like, well, am I gonna be too androgynous? Like where they're gonna think like, oh, here comes like a Nanette kind of, <laughs> of set you know I don't so for, it's this struggle for me and then also like all right I just want to get to the show and I don't want anybody to hit on me and I don't and this isn't me being like oh my god I'm so hot but this is any woman's experience trust me every woman in comedy um I don't want anybody to hit on me I just want to do my jokes I want to make people laugh so that's a big one too and then hecklers are a big issue because I've done so many shows I can there are countless shows where I was the only woman and they, the audience would not heckle any of the men, but as soon as a woman's on stage, they want to heckle. Uh, that's something that I've learned to roll with the punches and now I can handle hecklers like nobody's business. So um, it takes a lot, you have to have tough skin and you just gotta like uh, learn how to adapt. And it's definitely, you're constantly on, like yesterday, I got on stage and I made a joke because the host brought me up with, uh, like he didn't realize what he said. He like misspoke and he was like, everybody um, give it up, give all your money up to, and he goes, oh wait, never mind. I mean, just clap it up for Daniel Arce. And I went on stage and I was like, yeah, give me all your money. And I was like, this guy was definitely like an ex stripper announcer. Like he worked at an exotic club before this hundred percent. I was making that joke, right? And then an audience member like heckled, like, woo, hell yeah. Like, and I was like, mm, now I'm thinking about five different ways to defend myself when I got off this stage. <laughs> like, <laughs> so if you guys are watching this, um, I'm in a different location now. And Danielle's wearing something different. I'm wearing the same thing for continuity, but then I realized my background is different. So anyway, um, the question that I had asked you, then we got cut off yep. was, um, what's a myth about your profession, in this case, comedy, that you would like to debunk? Um, maybe a myth with women in comedy, I would say is that like men are funnier. I think that's oh. a big myth. I think that's a very common thing. Yeah. Um, I've been in a, a few clubs that I don't want to name because uh, I don't want to talk badly about them because I want to get rebuffed. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> One time I was I was doing a hosting weekend at a club and they had um, an amazing woman that was headlining. She wasn't super famous and she I, she's not dead. So she isn't super famous, but she's she's genuinely very funny. She just doesn't have a huge following, but mm -hmm. they booked her to headline and the turnout wasn't what they expected. And the owner and another guy, I don't know, he must have been part owner as well or something. They were discussing the, the issue, but they didn't know that I was in the room. I think they just forgot that I was there. And he, he the owner said to the other person, uh, you know, this is the last time I book a woman to headline. Oh. And I think that's another myth as well. And uh, one of my favorite comics, um, Bonnie McFarland, she has um, a whole documentary on this called Women Aren't Funny. And it's debunking that myth that women aren't as funny as men or that you know, women can't sell out or get as many tickets. It's just how we approach it. So obviously, if you book a headliner in general, male or female, non-binary, whatever, and they don't have a huge following, you know, they aren't super famous, then expect it to be a light night, right. you know? So it wasn't that it was a woman. And, and maybe it could have been as well where the audience is still a little hesitant because it's an unfamous female they may also have that myth in their head that, okay, maybe it's not gonna be that great because it's a woman, which is silly. So I think it's just overall, one, it is a myth that women aren't funny and it is a myth that we can't bring a crowd. So um, I think that's been a big one for me to like, 
just be myself on stage and be genuinely funny and do create a fan base for myself and to show that like we can handle it you know yeah yeah I don't I don't think that uh I don't believe that women are not funny I just think yeah I I mean I I know you don't (laughs) I I what I do think though and this I mean this is probably where it comes from is like there's just a lot more guys yeah that's the whole thing that the uh documentary went over is that like you know if there are a hundred male comedians then there are 30 female comedians you know like that's the kind of ratio that we're looking at so if you have a hundred male comedians guaranteed like 30 percent of them are like like an open mic 30 percent are funny and then you have 30 women comedians and if you have that same percentage 30 percent are funny then it's going to look like oh women aren't funny but it's just there are less of us right now. And so that's yeah. the kind of thing that I think is the big issue. But yeah. I agree. Um, okay. What, uh, what advice would you give somebody that is pursuing a career in stand-up comedy? Uh, general advice to anybody across the board would be to work on joke structure first. You got to learn how to follow the rules before you can break them. I think a lot of people just think they can just go up and say funny one-off thoughts. And I think they've got to realize a little bit more than that. And a a book I really highly recommend is The New Comedy Bible by Judy Carter, because the section in there about joke structure will never die. It will never die. I read that so long ago. Yeah, same. For my first four years in comedy, I would refer back to it all the time. And it was super helpful. I didn't have to, I mean, a lot of the other stuff you can choose to use or not, but that there's a whole section on joke structure that will live on forever. And yeah. it changed, you know, it changed the game for me in, in, in a certain point in my career as well. And I highly recommend it to everybody. So I just think, yeah, learning the, you don't have, don't take a stand-up class. You don't need to do that. <laughs> but Damn you know. it. Now you tell me. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm, I'm speaking Damn to it. the, to the hypothetical person that's looking yeah, to do stand up, not you. <laughs> you already got it down, but you know, it's, it's just learning how to find your your premise set up punchline, your premise set up punchline, your misdirects, your what makes your story unique? Why is it weird? Why is it odd? Why is it crazy? Why is it funny? And then there's your punch. So it's just learning how to write. It's literally taking pasta and sticking it to the wall, seeing what sticks. And that's how you're going to find your voice as well. And make sure it's personal to you, even if it's like a topical thing or whatever. Why? Why do you feel that way? Right. So you can make jokes about Tinder and I've heard a million terrible jokes about Tinder, but if you have something that is super, super personal connection, it can be funny. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, it's, it's all about just making it you. That's okay. it. Um, okay. If, uh, if you could step into my shoes, Danielle, <laughs> um, what would you have asked you that I didn't? Um, you see how you thought you were coming into mine, but it's really back at you. Okay. Like I think for me, it would be like, what personal battles oh. um, have I gone through that, like, and what's kept me going? And and for yeah. me, I've been through some stuff and I don't need to, obviously, we don't have, we don't have the time to get into it too deep, <laughs> right. but I've gone through, you know, deaths in the family. I've gone through pet losses. I've gone through a really terrible divorce and then a very terrible whirlwind relationship right after that that was extremely um emotionally scarring and I was for instance like my normal weight I'm about 5'4 and my normal weight is about 120 to 130 pounds depending sometimes 135 depending if I put on more muscle or not um and right after my divorce about five months later I was down to about 106 pounds oh wow so, yeah. And it was all from stress. And I was telling myself, like, I don't deserve to eat. I don't deserve to live. I don't deserve this. And the only thing that kept me going was stand up comedy. And um, as well as my personal training clients. So those two things, because yeah. I'm like, I have to show up on Saturday to train these people. I have to show up. I have a show tomorrow night. You know, I'm going to, I got to do it. So that's what kept me going. And anytime I was on stage or anytime I'm training somebody, I'm able to like throw all of that away. Um, and in 2018, I just started like, I need to take control of my life. And I started meditating and I started just nourishing myself and telling, telling myself food over bills, you know, health over bills, 
like car bill insurance and, and credit cards that can all be taken care of as long as I'm healthy first. And yeah. once I changed that game, I was able to start saving money. Um, I was able to put on my weight. Now I'm back to about, I fluctuate between 128 and 135. Um, and I'm able to balance everything, but it took stand-up comedy to get me through it. So, so then this is probably, I mean, do your best, but sure. what was it like for, I mean, cause I know I can speak on my behalf, but like <laughs> when we couldn't do stand-up for so long yeah, because of COVID, like that's like, that was like, what hurt for me and like I'm sure is like like you like this is my this is one of the ways I deal with everything and now I don't have that thing to deal it's with. my purpose and yeah. it's my calling and so for the first few months I was not good um because I also have depression and pretty darn high anxiety and I was having a lot of nervous breakdowns mm. and it was really tough my now fiance um he had to like be there for me a lot and I feel really bad for her. I feel really bad but like you know and then once it kind of was like okay like we just what can I control right now and I had to do more of like the therapy a little bit more of my meditations and stuff and then you know little by little did some zoom shows that they aren't exactly the same but it was still a way for me to have an outlet for my jokes and then did a little bit of live stuff when things started to open up right before the second wave yeah um then the second wave hit um, and just stuck with Zoom stuff, which still kept me afloat. Um, and now that things are open back up, like, I mean, this last month has been one of the most important months of my entire career in stand-up. You know, I got on TV, I, you know, booked a show that had just a star-studded, a star-studded room in LA, like fantastic. And so then, and I have more coming up. So it's like, I'm glad the pandemic hit it forced me to write a lot uh -huh. and now I'm excited. Awesome. I'm excited too. Uh, okay. So um, just tell everybody uh, where they can find you online. Sure. Um, you can go to my website. It's daniellearce.com. I have videos. Uh -huh. I have my bio, all my links to my social media on there. But if you want to just go directly to my Instagram, it's at daniellearcecomedy. My Twitter uh -huh. is just my first and last name, daniellearce. But you just search channel RC comedy, you can find all my stuff online. Okay, we'll put it we'll put it in the show notes too. Um, thank you for coming back. This is a two part. That yeah. You guys <laughs> will not notice, but we had to do this in two separate parts. But so thank yeah. you. Um, thank you. Hang on for one second. Sure. Um, you guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Performer Podcast. You guys um, follow Danielle. We will see you guys uh, next time.